0: Father, we just uh, thank you for the privilege to gather together with other believers, to uh, spend some time together in fellowship, to gather around your word, and to uh, interact with truth, and then to to join our voices together in song as we worship you. Pray for our ministry to our kids today. Thanks for the... Great uh, energy in this place before church during the conversation time around coffee and stuff. like. God, just thank you for what you're doing in this place and in our lives as a church and in our lives as individuals for the things that you're teaching us. And today we ask that you would just lead us in your truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in a series that we're calling Big Hairy Audacious Questions. And if you are a skeptical person, how many of you are okay with acknowledging that you are a bit skeptical by nature? Anybody here? Let me just see. I'm kind of curious. I know you're skeptical. You don't want to put your hand up because you're skeptical of what I might want of you. But, uh, okay, even a little bit. If you're a skeptical person, or even if you would say you're at very least skeptical about a few things about the Christian faith, uh, we've been hoping you would show up. Uh, or, if you find yourself in conversations, or maybe you go looking for these kinds of conversations, maybe you 're that messed up with friends and family members and coworkers who are skeptics, and you love to have those conversations, but you interact with people who have uh, who are skeptics, who have some really big questions that have kept them maybe at arm's length from Christianity and who and you want to be better equipped to be able to engage with them and so this is great. I'm really really glad you're here this morning. We so what we did is a few weeks ago I put out an email. We put it on Facebook that we wanted you to send us your biggest, most difficult questions about the Christian faith. We wanted to hear the questions that you're hearing from your skeptical, unbelieving, unchurched friends, from the you know family, coworkers, whoever they are. And you responded to that. You sent in nearly forty questions. And these aren't softball questions to make the pastor look smart. These are some of the big ones. And the most difficult questions that you wrestle with as even as followers of Jesus are questions that the unbelieving people in your life wrestle with and maybe like to bring up in conversation just to maybe either just to get you going or maybe to validate their reasons for being skeptical of the Christian faith. So here's the deal. These aren't new questions. Most of these are questions that have been around for a long time. They're they're questions that people have carried with them for sometimes hundreds and hundreds of years. And they're questions that uh, make a lot of people skeptical. And some of you are Christians and you've decided that Jesus is your Savior, but you're still skeptical when it comes to a few specific issues in your faith. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you have a friend who says, no, I can't be a Christian until I get this question uh, are these questions answered? So we've taken these questions that you've submitted, maybe a couple of my own, and we're putting together this series that we're calling Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. I don't know how many of these we're going to address. Uh, We'll figure that out as we go, but I think this series is going to take us a while, so I would say settle in, because we're going to be here for a few hours at least. That's really why I canceled softball. (laughs) So if you missed part one a couple weeks ago, it's not a big deal. These are not necessarily stand... These these are kind of standalone messages. They don't necessarily build one off the other, so one isn't really dependent on the other. But having said that, I hope that you would pick up the CDs or go, to the, go online to faithcommunityfellowship.com and listen or download, or better yet, subscribe to the podcast so that you can listen in uh, as we try to answer these big, hairy, audacious questions. So I'll say this. In part one, we established that everything is a belief system. If you're a Christian, you understand that, everything, that, that's, that that's a belief system. If you have friends or coworkers who are Muslim or Buddhists or Jehovah's Witnesses or even Republicans—just kidding—those are belief systems. And if you, so atheism, atheism is a belief system. And if you think you're the exception because you're like, I don't really have a belief system. Uh, I'm still trying to figure it out, and I'm borrowing from this belief system and from that belief system, and I'm not really sure if I really have a belief system at all. I would contend that even the absence of a belief system is a belief system. Now, the reality for all of us, it's true for Christians, it's true for wherever you sit on the spiritual spectrum, is that you're staking your life on your belief system. That's what you're doing. You're staking your life in your belief system. We only get one shot at this, and if you get it wrong and you end up being wrong and you've staked your life on it, uh, it's kind of a big deal. And, and you might say, well, I don't really believe anything happens after we die. We just decompose and that's it. End of story. Okay, but you spent your whole life believing something that may or may not have been true. And at that point, you'll find out for sure that whether you, what you've believed is true or not. And even for those people who say, well, I don't really have any religion, I don't believe in any religion, and that's a growing percentage of people in America, then you're staking your life and your afterlife on that belief system. And the challenge for some of us church people is that we think Christianity is just something that we have to believe. Some of you grew up in church. How many of you consider yourself to have grown up in church? I'm just curious. All right. Yeah, you're, some of you are really messed up then. And you're like, you you got issues that look like nobody else's issues. And you're like, I don't even know. I'm just a Christian. I don't even know if it stands up intellectually or not. But I guess I should believe it because I've always believed it. And it's what my parents taught me, my grandparents, and before that for generations. And I don't want to disappoint my parents or my grandparents or whoever. Maybe you're just one of those people who says, well, I've just always believed. I don't ever remember not believing. But you've never really been convinced that there are good reasons for believing. I think there are some great reasons for believing, and I think there are some respectable reasons for not believing. And what I want to try to do here is to have an honest conversation about these belief systems. And I acknowledge that it's pretty much a one-way conversation here because I'm going to do all the talking. So I would encourage you, if you want to engage in a meaningful conversation with lots of opinions and multiple voices, um, get some people together. Uh, have them over to your house, have coffee, Uh, talk about these topics, ask some more questions, and then ask some more questions, and get as interactive as you can with this stuff, because it's just tough to do that in this environment, even with just this many people in the room. Just make sure that at some point, you can ask, what does this mean, what does this mean for me, and what's really at stake? So I hope that at the end of this series, sometime in like 2017, that even if I haven't been able to change your mind, that at least We've come out of this with an open mind. That's really my goal. And for those of you, I'm a pretty persuasive guy. I'm, I believe I could change your mind, okay? Let's just get that out, out there right now. But it's not my, I'm just kidding. It's not my agenda. My agenda is not to change your mind, to persuade you and change your mind. My, my agenda is for all of us to engage with open minds. I'm not afraid of you in an honest pursuit of truth. I encourage that. So I hope you'll come away each week a little bit better equipped, to maybe engage in some conversations, that you'll be able to talk with the skeptics in your life and be well-informed, and that you'll be honest and humble in those conversations. And I'm well aware that a lot of people think that Christianity is anti-intellectual, that it's the opposite of an intellectual approach. You know, some of the best minds in history have looked at all the arguments and all the evidence and decided in favor of Jesus. Oh, and some of the best minds in history have decided against Jesus and Christianity too. But being a Christian doesn't mean that you've got to check your brain at the door. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you have to suspend all critical thought and reasoning. In fact, I think there are some very, very compelling reasons that, we may, uh, that may lead you to become a follower of Jesus and to, to, and, to, and to trust Him with your life if you really explore those reasons. But regardless of where you land on this... Um, You're staking your life on whatever belief system that you're leaning into. So the question we want to wrestle with today, and each week we're looking at one question. A lot of these questions are questions you submitted, and I found that several of them fit into three or four uh, general categories. So they they were phrased a little bit differently, but you were essentially asking the same thing. So I've kind of lumped them together. So here's today's question, and this is kind of the conglomeration of three or four different questions that came to me, but we're going to phrase it this way, and it's how can Jesus be the only way to God? That's a great question. Great question. For some of your friends, and maybe for some of you sitting here, because I don't know everybody's story, that's why you're not a Christian. Because you're like, well, I believe Jesus is like he's, like, he's like a way to God. And I believe that Jesus can be a valid way for some people. But seriously, how can he be the only way to God? And some of you who are Christians might struggle with this too. Because you're like, well, I believe he's my way but does he have to be the only way? And it bothers you because it sounds a little bit arrogant, and it does. It sounds very, very narrow and exclusive. So I get it. It's a really tough question. And in the culture that you and I live in and are a part of and contribute to, it's a big one because people don't like to be excluded. So how could Jesus seriously be the only way to God? Now, if you've ever been excluded from something... You know how uncomfortable that feels. Some of you remember how it felt to get cut from the team. And you, some of you, are, you feel like the outsider in your own family. And some of you are, you know what it's like to hear about the after work get together the next morning. You know? So being left out, being excluded isn't fun. And sometimes it's painful. So when we ask this question, how can Jesus be the only way to God? We're asking it because it feels very exclusive. And if we're honest, it seems controlling and it seems unreasonably fear-based. So I get that. I think another way to ask the question is, why do I have to accept Jesus as my Savior? Why do I have to believe? Why, do I have to believe? why can't God just kind of wave his wand and everybody gets in? I mean, since the price that Jesus paid was so great, why leave anybody out? And there's a, there's a branch of, of theology that leans that way. Why not just include everyone? I know people who believe in Jesus, they are followers of Jesus, they believe in his divinity, they believe that he's the son of God, but they don't believe that he's the only way to God. That's the culture we live in. And I, you know, it's like, I'll believe what I believe, and you believe what you believe. Why does Jesus have to be the only way? Come on. So I want to pose to you a very different way of thinking about Christianity and about Jesus. Again, I may not be able to change your mind, but I hope that at least in the little bit of time we have today, that your mind might open just a little bit. We said in part one that sometimes the best way to answer and address a difficult question is with another question. And since today's question is, how can Jesus be the only way to God? My response to that is, what if Jesus' way is the most inclusive way? Hmm. Most of us have probably never really thought about this whole issue this way, but what if Jesus' way is actually the most inclusive way? I don't know, you probably don't have a category for that. That's why there's like zero reaction. I didn't expect one. That's fine. I hope you're thinking about it because you're not like, wow, where do I put that one? It's like, you know, come on, Christianity, it can be so arrogant because it's so exclusive and it's so narrow. I understand that. But what if, just open your mind for a minute, what if Jesus' way is actually the most inclusive way? There are a couple of widely accepted ideas that I want to touch on. Widely accepted doesn't mean that I believe it. Um, and you can make up your own mind. We're venturing into some intellectual uh, mind games, and this could get a little mentally exhausting, but I think this could be helpful, so please stay with me. Um, If this bores you, um, and I understand that because it's going to get a little dry here for a few minutes, but if you you just can't keep your eyes open anymore because this is so dry and boring... Go ahead and stand in the back. I encourage you to do that. Move around if you have to. Just don't stand back there by the half wall, because when you do that, the sun shines through and it casts your shadow up there, and it distracts me because I like puppet shows, so it's really distracting to me when I see these heads over there. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that? So the people who stand back there, when you get up and go to the bathroom, don't come back in. You stand back there. You never knew that you were also casting a pu- puppet show, like a shadow puppet show up there. It's really now okay. You never even now I've created a distraction that wasn't a distraction. Maybe I'll just go stand over there. So anyway, sorry. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. If you've got to get up and move, you've got to change positions, you've got to lean back there just and prop your eyelids open, that's fine. Do whatever. Because uh, if you're back there, it's not distracting to, to anybody. Um, so go ahead and stretch and, and stay engaged, I guess is what I'm saying. Just hang with me. See, I like, I'm okay with, with my own nerdery. And I just made that word up. That's how much of a nerd I am. I'm okay with that. And I like dry intellectual stuff and evidentiary stuff. And I like those kinds of round and round and round, round we go and these kind of mind whatever. So um, this interests me, so I, I hope it interests you. You know what? If you're really, really, really bored and struggling to stay awake, we save some seats for you right here. And I guarantee you just, you won't be able, you'll be mesmerized if you're sitting right here. Um <laughs> Anyway, I want to look at several ideas that are widely accepted. Most of us grew up in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, some of these ideas are just widely accepted because of where we grew up. You probably believe them. Uh, maybe you do. Your friends, family, coworkers probably believe them too, whether they're Christians or not. These are ideas that are just widely accepted in a post-Enlightenment, post-Christian, post-modern Western culture. So here's what just about everybody believes, Christians and non-Christians. Number one is that all world religions are basically the same. Most people believe that. Christianity is just one religion, and then there's Islam, and there's Buddhism, and there's Hinduism. And you might believe that all world religions are basically the same, and it's just widely accepted to be true. And you talk to people inside the church and outside the church, and a lot of people, an overwhelming percentage of people believe that. I want to suggest to you that the truth is very, very different from that. If, if you go, here's the thing, not a single world religion agrees with that. If you went to a, and, and, and depending on what you read, there are anywhere from 5 to 12 recognized world religions, okay? So if you go to a Jew and say, so basically you guys are just like the Muslims, right? No, no, not at all, not even close. Go to a Muslim and say, so basically you're just like Baha'i, right? I'm like, no, not at all. Go to a Buddhist and say, so Buddhism and Catholicism are basically the same, right? But some I know it's crazy when you start to really get that bore down on a little bit. Somehow in our Western culture, we believe that all religions are basically the same, but that's just not true. And I know it's what everybody seems to believe and wants to convince themselves to believe. And I know it's what people tend to think, but study world religions. Even at a surface glance, if you think this is true, you clearly have never read much about world religions. Because at a surface glance, you will realize that not a single world religion teaches that all religions are the same. Because they're not. And you might say, or your friends might say, you know, well, I believe that all religions are basically the same. And that's fine, but you need to understand you are making that up all you need to do is read a little bit about these different religions and you'll conclude they are not basically the same. So you're making up a belief system now that f- fits you, but it isn't based on anything true. It's like saying in 2015 that I believe the earth is flat. I'm convinced. I, I know what people say. I've seen the evidence, but I believe that the earth is flat. I know it's flat. I believe it so much that I know it's flat. And that's fine, you know. even though we know it's round and nobody believes that anymore. And if you want to believe that all world religions are the same, that's fine. But it's on a level with, I believe the world is flat. And if you believe that, then you might as well believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5 as well. Because no world religion is going to agree with this. The only people who say that all world religions are the same are people who haven't studied world religions. So second uh, proposition that's widely accepted is that all, religions claim to be the, that all religions that claim to be the only way are arrogant and wrong. And I stumbled on that, so let me repeat that. All world religions that claim to be the only way are arrogant and wrong. And I understand why some people feel this way. Um, Because in some cases, some of the things that have been done in the name of exclusive views are just wrong. And you were born in the 20th century, Western hemisphere, Western world, and this is how you think? Well, the statement that all religions that claim to be the only way are wrong is by its own terms arrogant and wrong and this is a logical leap here uh, but if you're going to use logic to disprove the claims of Christianity then you got to be willing to play it both ways the reality is that the very statement that all religions that claim to be the only way are wrong is by its own logic by its own terms a wrong and arrogant statement because if I come along and I say I'm right and you say no you're not you're wrong then it's like wait a minute that's absolutist what you're saying to me. That's exclusive. That's a little bit arrogant. And if you're telling me that I can't say I'm right, and you're telling me that I'm wrong by saying I'm right, then you've just established yourself as right, and you've positioned yourself in opposition to me. (laughs) Should we take a break? (laughs) So, anybody need a drink? So, someone who's going to play that game needs to understand that a statement that's as sweeping as this, that all religions that claim to be the only way are arrogant and wrong is in itself arrogant and wrong. And from a logical standpoint, you just have to admit that. And you have to be kind of okay with that. Third, widely accepted idea. The best religion is a religion that tolerates all others. That feels good. It's it's why we lean that way, because it feels good. It's basically the age that we are, I was going to say moving into, we're there. Christians, you should be a religion that just tolerates everybody else, especially the religion that I believe in. (laughs) And again, there's something very attractive to that line of thinking, but then there's reality. Reality would suggest that even tolerance has its limits. Let's just make the assumption here that you are a very tolerant person. I know you. You're super tolerant. Okay? Understood. You're a very tolerant person. That's, I mean, that's nice. Do you tolerate everything? Oh, pretty much. Yeah, I tolerate, like, I tolerate, I'm very tolerant. I tolerate everything. If somebody came to you and made an argument to you that child slavery and child labor is a good thing because it makes the shoes on your feet cheaper, what would you say? My guess is you would say, no, 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 wait, no, wait, no, I'm not into that. I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not into child exploitation and child slavery and child labor. I'm not into that. Oh, oh, so you're a very tolerant person, but even your tolerance has a limit. Is that what you're saying? And then we're like, well, well, why is this right and why is that wrong? Well, see, I accept all beliefs. No, you don't. Because you still believe that some things are wrong. And if you're going to play the tolerance logic game, then you have to play it all the way out. I don't know what sort of bends the edges of your mind a little bit, but your tolerance, if you consider yourself a tolerant person or the people that you interact with and have these conversations with, consider themselves a tolerant, they're tolerant people and that's why they have issues with you as a Christian because you're not tolerant and they're more tolerant and we should all be more tolerant. Your tolerance and religion should be tolerant of... uh... (laughs) I'm beginning to be intolerant myself on this one. Even if you're the most tolerant person on the planet, even your tolerance has limits. Because the, the... Stay with me, because the plea for tolerance itself is intolerant when it allows for no other options. So if you're like, well, oh, I just want us all to be tolerant. Well, I don't want to be tolerant. Well, you're just wrong then. Now, you just became intolerant of me. So if we're making the claim that everybody should just get along, we should all be tolerant of one another, you need to understand that even your tolerance, as the most tolerant human who ever lived, has limits. And if you have a subjective morality because, you know, you believe one thing, I believe another, even you have edges to your morality. We all have things that we believe are right and wrong. And if you're just focused on being tolerant, what do you do with that? Because even your tolerance has a limit. I need a drink. Um, Ravi Zacharias, how many of you have ever heard of him? <laughs> if you want to blow your mind sometime, you want to get super intellectual in your apologetic study, just read of Ravi Zacharias. Do you know he's coming to Bangor next spring? Ravi Zacharias and Lee Strobel, your mind will be blown. And uh, so I plan to get tickets for that. As soon as they're available next spring, they're coming to the Cross Center in, uh, in Bangor. Anyway, Ravi Zacharias says this. He says, what the person means who says you must be open to everything is really you must be open to everything that I am open to. And anything I disagree with, you must disagree with too. Great point. So if you and your friends are going to play this logical game and have, to have credibility, to be honest in your position, you've got to go deeper. You've got to take your logic and you've got to take your thinking to the edges and explore it little bit more here and I promise and we're not going to camp here forever because I know it's a little heady and a little confusing but all truth is by nature exclusive all truth is by its very nature exclusive even to claim that there is no truth is an exclusive claim so if you're talking to someone and they're like well there's no such thing as objective truth well they just disproved that didn't they Because they just said objectively that there's no such thing as objective truth. So all truth claims, even if you say all truth is relative, that's by nature an exclusive claim. So you could criticize Christianity or other belief systems for that matter by saying they're not tolerant, but I am. And you would be wrong. Because all truth, even your claim that there is no truth, or even your claim that you are tolerant of all things, is in itself an exclusive claim. That was all just to set up this point that I want to make here. Uh, here's another way of phrasing the question. What if Christianity is inclusive? What if Christianity is inherently inclusive? And you're like, no, no, it's not inclusive. It's exclusive because it says that Jesus is the only way to God. What about other religions? And what about people who've never heard? And what about people in other countries where Christianity is prohibited? And, and what about, and what about, and what about? What if Christianity by its very nature is inclusive. I know we don't have a reputation for being inclusive. Christians don't. But what if you actually studied the historical context of Christianity and studied the scripture to discover that in fact Christianity is radically inclusive? Cuz I think if you did that that's what you would find. And again, you, you don't have to check your brain at the door to be a Christian, all right? So investigate this. Look at what the scripture has to say. Read what ancient historians have to say. Christianity is about 2,000 years old. It got its roots in Judaism, which goes back thousands of years before that. But it was born in Greco-Roman culture, the empire of the Greeks and the Romans, biggest superpower in the world. That's Christianity's backdrop. But when Christianity came along, it was making uh, in Jesus a distinctive claim that was very, very different from any other claims in the first century. Here's the thing. Greco-Roman culture was very inclusive theologically. They believed that each person should have their own gods and have as many gods as possible and have a god for every moment of the day, different gods, a whole collection of gods. That's great. In that way, it's not a lot different from our culture because we hear things like, well, you have your god or Jesus or whatever and that's not my god. That's not my belief system but that's okay. And the Greco-Romans would agree with that. They had many, many different gods. In fact, it's Greco-Roman, which means it's a fusion of the Greeks and the Romans, and the Greeks had their gods, and the Romans had their gods, and then, and then they kind of put it all together, and they had this myriad of gods, and they, were, they didn't even understand the concept of monotheism uh, at all. They, they didn't believe in one god. They, had this, they were pluralists. They had all kinds of gods. So they were very inclusive theologically, believing that each person should have their own god or gods. But the Greco-Roman people were exclusive economically and socially and often treated the poor and women brutally. So I already have a problem with this. So very open theologically, hey, whatever you want to believe, that's great. But economically, they practiced slavery. And economically, the rich were very rich and the poor were very poor. And socially, there were divisions everywhere. And they treated the poor and women brutally. Women had no rights. They were the property of the father or the husband. And as a result, women were treated very, very poorly. And children were treated even worse. This was the cultural system. That uh, This is how they treated children. There was an inherent bias towards male children. As a man, if your wife bore you a child, bore you a girl, then the father would look at the child, decide, look at the whole scenario, and decide whether he or not he wanted to keep her, if there's any value to him to keep her. And if he chose so, he would just put this newborn baby girl on the side of the road, and one of two things would likely happen. Either she'd be picked up and sold into slavery, into slavery, or just as likely she would die of exposure, and nobody thought anything of it. It's just how it worked. So they're very inclusive theologically and very exclusive when it came to treatment of people. That's Greco-Roman culture. Look at early Christianity. This is the historical backdrop of early Christianity. Christians believed the opposite of the culture they were living in. Can you identify with that? They're like, oh, we're so oppressed, and we've got it so bad here, and we used to be this and no. The early Christians believed the opposite of the culture they, they uh, were living in. Christians believed that there was one way to God, but they treated the poor and women with special honor. So they were exclusive theologically. Jesus is the way, he's the only way to God, but we're going to treat you with honor and with respect. And Christians came up with this morality that said, this is how you treat women. Marriage is a union under God. Guys, you stay married to one woman for life. You honor her, you cherish her, you protect her, you love her like Christ loved the church. Whoa, there's a lofty bar to to attain to, and these children—they're—they're—they're they're, they're, they're dressed in a way that was radical. They were loved. Boys and girls, both, were loved. Remember the scene where Jesus says, "Bring the bring the kids to me. Let them come to me. I want to I want to spend some time with them and tired of you adults who drive me crazy. I just want to hang out with some kids and jammers. You know, like I want to go serve there. And the disciples are like, "They're kids. They're snotty nose, Get them out of here. Gross." But Jesus spent time with the children, with little boys and little girls. And eventually, Christians learned to see the image of God in children, in boys, in girls, and in women. And then it went way beyond this, because the early church was a microcosm of diversity that wasn't happening in any other culture or any other religion. And you might, you might think of it, and you might have friends who think of it as very exclusive, but the reason you think of it as exclusive is because you're living in the after effects of Christendom. Here's what I mean. We've had 2,000 years of Christianity. And you grew up thinking, well, that's just the way it's always been. But it wasn't. When you study history, you begin to realize that the early Christians, they were radical in their diversity, radical in their inclusiveness. And the reason you don't think of it as radical is because you've grown up in a culture that maybe doesn't profess Jesus anymore but is living with the after effects of 2,000 years of Christendom, of Christendom or Christianity. That's why even though this might sound self-evident, it's not. You might think, well, I'm not even a Christian. I believe that. I believe in diversity. I believe in respectful treatment and honor of people and that people have worth. And you might think, I'm not even a Christian, but I believe that. Or you might have a friend who says, I'm not a Christian, but I believe that. Why? Because the early Christians changed the game when it came to ethics. Changed it forever. So look at this. We're finally going to get into some scripture. We're going to be in First Corinthians chapter one. I'm going to read a few verses, and then we're going to go to Galatians and then uh, a couple of verses in Romans. First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-six. And I'm not going to give you a lot of time to turn to it, but we're going to put it on the screen. Look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Remember, dear brothers and sisters. So, uh, and he says, remember, because he's writing in the mid-50s, maybe more than 20 years after the resurrection, and all these people had converted to the way, to the way of Jesus. And he's like, How, do, you, do you remember the way it used to be? See, we don't remember the way it used to be. We weren't there. Even if you grew up in the church, you know, because we've been living in the after effects of Christianity. He says, remember, dear brothers and sisters. And I think it's awesome that he actually addresses the women. It was radical. Dear brothers and sisters, a few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. And see, that would have excluded you from just about every other religion. few of you were wise, powerful, or wealthy when God called you. Instead, verse 27, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. This is radical stuff. And He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. And God chose things, despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. So that God would include what we would naturally exclude. Verse 29. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. You know those uppity religious people. I read my Bible more than anybody. I don't care. Neither do you. You can't boast in the presence of God because you were a nobody and God loved you. That's your story. Galatians 3. Still Paul speaking. Verse 26. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who've been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Get ready. There is no longer Jew Or Gentile. Just stop there. What do you mean, Paul? (laughs) Well, what? Jews in the first century would not hang out with Gentiles. You might all be followers of Jesus, but you're a Jew. I'm a Gentile. Not hanging out together. Gentiles would not hang out with Jews. And we're like, well, that's crazy. That's like racism or bigotry or something. And the reason we think that's crazy is because our world has been affected. We are living in the after effects of 2,000 years of Christianity. What's normal to you today and me, to, to, to you and me today, hasn't always been normal. Go to parts of the world that don't have the history of Christendom that we have. Go to Africa and ask the Hutus how much they like the Tutsis. That's, pretty, that's been pretty obvious in the last... 25 years. Go to Eastern Europe and talk with people about the ethnic hatred that has haunted them for hundreds and hundreds of years. And Jesus comes along and shares his gospel, his inclusive gospel. And his closest followers, like Paul, say, no, 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 no. Jesus has changed everything. He says there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. when you read the New Testament and you read about all this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles and you wonder, what is the deal with these guys? Why, why can't they just get along? Can't they just get over it? And they, they couldn't. They couldn't until they started to radically impact the culture because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And Christianity, which has this weird reputation for being exclusive, is actually radically inclusive. And when you look at the New Testament, this is unbelievable because because this, nobody had ever done before. They'd never seen it practiced before. Here's what Tim Keller has to say about this. He says, at the heart of this exclusive faith is a man who died for his enemies and who loved the world that hated him enough to kill him. It's well said. And this is what people look at and say, well, that's too exclusive. At the heart of this exclusive faith is a man who died for his enemies and who loved the world and who hated him enough to kill him. Early Christians didn't kill people who disagreed with them. They willingly gave their lives out of love for them. If you're an authentic follower of Jesus, you don't kill somebody who disagrees with you but you lay down your life for them. That's radically different, radically inclusive. Look at this passage from Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Again, Paul says, When we were utterly helpless... Ever been there? You can try to fix yourself. How's that working for you? you been trying to fix your marriage. You've been trying to fix your relationships with your kids. You've been trying to fix this addictive behavior. You've been trying to fix this battle that you have with yourself. How's that working for you? Sin just shows up all over the place. Verse 6, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, Paul says, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. Let's just do a survey real quick. Show of hands. How many of you would be willing to die for a son or a daughter? If you're a parent, you should put your hand up right now. Okay? That's how it works. Right. Those are the rules of the game. Okay? Because <laughs> they might be in the room, might be wondering, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> how many of you would be willing to die for a spouse? Same rules apply. Think of a person, well, oh, so how many of you would be willing to die for your boss? Think about that. Okay? All right. It's not even Monday. Interesting. <sighs> I didn't say how many of you would be willing to kill your boss. (laughs) Think of the person who has caused you the most hurt in your life, the person most responsible for the baggage and the emotional scars that you carry around. How many of you would be willing to die for that person? You know? Verse 8, God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. This is the radically exclusive Christianity that so many people are skeptical of. Some of them even hate it because it's so exclusive. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jump to verse 15. He's having this whole discussion about Adam's sin and how we all inherited Adam's sin. He says, there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater... Is God's wonderful grace and His gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ? And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God. How do you become a Christian? It's not through what you've done or anything you can do. It's through what God has already done through Christ. He says, even though we are guilty of many sins. Verse 17. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. This is where I wanted to get to. Verse 18, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Not just the good people, not just the smart people, not just the wealthy people, not like, oh, good for you, you were born in a Christian home. Oh, lucky you, you were born in the United States of America. You're in none of that. And can you imagine how radical this was for the first century? In a world that was exclusively exclusive, Christianity comes along and paves this new way. And this isn't about anything that you've done or anything that you could do. You just receive this as a gift when you come to trust Jesus as your Savior. You get a right relationship with God and you get a new life, and it's for everyone. So here's my question What could be more inclusive? What could be more inclusive? This one way that Jesus offers, I think it's the most radically inclusive way. A few years ago, Andy Stanley said it this way. He said it means three things, that everybody is invited, everybody is included, and everybody is important. What if Jesus' way is the most inclusive way? And I realize I I probably haven't changed your mind in the last 40 minutes. But I hope at the very least your mind is open. And if you're staking your life on what you believe, and we all kind of are, isn't this worth honestly investigating? What if Jesus' way is the most inclusive way? Let me read this verse from Romans 5, then we'll repeat it out loud together because I love this, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 18. Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. And I think uh, we ought to read this together. Read it with me. Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. For everyone. Uh, If I were editing that, I would have put an exclamation point at the end of that. What could be more inclusive? It's just radically different, radically inclusive. So what do we do about it? What difference does it make? What can I do, what can you do as a response to this? Because some of this has been a little heady today, some of it's a bit, a bit, been a little bit ridiculously academic and logical. So what can I do in response to what I've heard? If you're a Christian, which is most of us, if you're a Christian, maybe you can change the conversation with someone who thinks Christianity is exclusive. And they might not go, oh, man, you're right. I've been wrong all along. You're so smart. You know, they may not respond that way, but maybe it'll open their minds at least. And to those of you for whom this has been a stumbling block, this has been one of those things that keeps you at arm's length, keeps you from being all in, what can you do? Let me answer that question with a question. How will you respond to the fact that everyone is invited, everyone is included, and everyone is important, including you? See, it's not just a story. It's not just logic. It's not just academic. It's personal. And God came in the form of a person, in the person of Jesus, not just to save humanity, but He came for you because He loved you, even in your sin. He loved you even in your rebellion. He loved us when we were broken. And as crazy as it sounds, he wants a relationship with each of us. He wants you to have a restored relationship with your Heavenly Father. So what if Jesus' way is the most inclusive way? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a lot to think about today. Who knew that when we ask a que- answer a question with a question that it take us here? But um, thank you for this time together to really explore and meditate a little bit on these questions because we're staking our lives on what we believe. So help us to test the authenticity, the reliability of these assumptions. And God, as we continue to study the good news and to study the gospel of Jesus, may we really personally come to understand that Jesus really loves us. That isn't, this isn't just historical or logical, but it's personal. And Heavenly Father, if there's anyone in this room this morning who has yet to take that step of faith towards you, towards a relationship, towards receiving Christ as their Savior and restoring that relationship with their Heavenly Father, may this be their day to take that step in your direction. I don't often do this, but would you keep your heads bowed for just a second because I want to talk with you. And while I talk, while I ask a couple questions, I'm going to have the band come so that we can be ready to play some music as soon as I'm done. So they're going to come right now. I'm just wondering, while we're sitting here quietly, have you ever expressed to your Heavenly Father, thank you that Christ died for my sins? Thank you that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, that he lives today. I want to embrace him as my personal Savior. Has there ever been that moment for you? And I know you might have questions that are so sophisticated, I'll never be able to answer them for you in a satisfactory way, but the real issue is what have you done with Jesus and what have you done with his gospel that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead? Listen. Listen if there's never been a moment in your life that you've embraced that personally, I want to give you that moment today. Today's a perfect day. This is the message that brings us together. If during our, this message in the last 45 minutes or so, there was something that clicked in you, that dawned in you, that somehow all the other questions kind of filtered away and there was just this one big thing in front of you and you think, you know what? I think I believe this. Perhaps this is the day for you to embrace this message and to be restored in a relationship with your Heavenly Father. So if you find yourself right there, well, Christians in this room pray for you, I want to lead you through prayer. You change the words. You can say it out loud. You can say it in your heart. You can write it down. But However, just communicate it with God in your way and just say something like, Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and for my sins. I believe he was buried, and I believe on the third day you raised him from the dead and that he was seen. And I embrace him as my Savior. I'm trusting him to provide forgiveness for my sin, my past sin, the sins I'll commit this very day, and my future sin. I embrace his forgiveness. Receive me into your family. I'm thrilled to establish this new relationship with my Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus, the resurrected Savior. Amen.